I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we're reading Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56, and John chapter 6, verses 15 to 71. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version also is available. Let's begin by taking a look at where we are in Jesus' ministry. He's still ministering in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus did not return to Jerusalem to attend the festivities there accompanying the third Passover feast of his ministry. And these events, by the way, mark the beginning of Jesus' last year of ministry before his crucifixion. In our first section of Scripture, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52, and John chapter 6, verses 15 to 21. This is the occasion when Jesus walks on the sea. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now over to Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Same occasion. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid." Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Now over to John's account in John chapter 6, verse 15. His account is more abbreviated than the others. 
Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Well, this event follows the feeding of the 5,000 that's recorded in Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6. All four gospel accounts record the feeding of the 5,000. On that occasion, Jesus and his disciples had boarded a ship, and they traveled to a solitary place away from Bethsaida. It was on a mountainside that Jesus and his disciples were approached by the 5,000-plus people for a teaching session. During that time, we're told in John chapter 6, verse 4, that the third Passover of Jesus' ministry was taking place. Now we find Jesus sending his disciples away back toward Capernaum and Bethsaida. There's a map I've provided on the written notes. You can take a look for reference. Since they reached Gennesaret in Matthew chapter 14, verse 34, and Mark chapter 6, verse 53, they're traveling along the shore from east to west. It's interesting that while Matthew, Mark, and John give the account of the story of Jesus walking on the water, it's only Matthew who tells us about Peter trying to duplicate the feet. Obviously, that wasn't the big story to John, and it wasn't the big story to Mark either. John gives a great bit of detail to the subsequent fallout on the day following this miracle, where we see that many of Jesus' disciples, not the twelve apostles, cease following Jesus. Now, they're rowing against the wind here, about three to three and a half miles out, and they're making little or no progress across the Sea of Galilee toward Capernaum, Bethsaida. That's when Jesus, who stayed behind to pray, walks by the ship on the water. Matthew and Mark point out that the disciples thought at first that Jesus was a spirit or a ghost. The Greek word used in Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, and Mark 6:49 is phantasma, and it's used only these two times in the whole New Testament. After everything they'd seen Jesus do, why would a little Jesus water walking surprise them so? And why would it be easier to believe that they were seeing a ghost rather than actually seeing Jesus walking on the water? Mark makes a noteworthy observation in verse 52 of chapter 6. He says, For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. The term heart was hardened is only meant to convey to the reader that these disciples were having a difficult time equating the miracles of Jesus with the reality that he, as God, actually had power over the elements of the universe. Even though they had reviewed the reality-defying feat of feeding the 5,000-plus, they were nonetheless amazed at a little bit of water-walking. Mark seems to find that aspect of the story amusing, while Matthew finds amusing the fact that Peter tries his hand out at walking on the water as well. John gives the account, but makes a point that neither Matthew nor Mark mention when he says in verse 15 regarding Jesus' initial absence from the ship, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Only John felt that it was important to show why Jesus initially stayed back 
after sending the people away. Next, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 14, verses 34 through 36, and Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56. We see here that many touch Jesus and are made well. Matthew 14, 34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Well, Gennesaret is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, next to Capernaum. Obviously, he's well received upon his arrival there. The sick people there are brought out into the open where Jesus will pass by. All those who touch the border or the hem of his garment are healed, we're told. These tassels, it's the Hebrew word zitzit, the Greek word kraspadon, these were part of his garment in keeping with the law of Moses in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, where here's what it says in the Old Testament law. Speak to the children of Israel... Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. Observant Jews, they still wear these tassels on their four-cornered garments today. Another zit-zit incident is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, Mark 5, 21 to 43, and Luke 8, chapter 40 to 56. It was believed at that time that touching these tassels on Jesus' garment would result in healing. Well, and it did. All that did were made perfectly well, we're told. In John chapter 6, verses 22 to 25, we have a transportation miracle by Jesus. Verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Well, John adds a little addendum to the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. The people were unaware of that miracle. They'd only seen Jesus' disciples get on that single ship. Yet Jesus had somehow ended up with his disciples at their destination. Having seen no other ships at the time, the people all wonder, how did he do that? Then we have a very controversial discussion about bread that is only recorded by John in John chapter 6, verses 26 to 59. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, 
because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Well, this episode takes place in the synagogue, as we just saw, in Capernaum near the time of the Passover feast. That's one year before the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus had just miraculously fed the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14, previously in Mark 6, and Luke 9, and John 6. The teaching session becomes one of extreme doctrinal significance here. 
The discussion turns to one of motivation when the people finally find Jesus. He points out to the crowd, and in verse 26, he says, You seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And that's an interesting observation Jesus shares with us. Many of these followers were simply prosperity seekers. They weren't interested in Jesus for any of the right reasons. They simply observed that he was able to take two fishes and five loaves and feed 5,000 plus with food left over. Incidentally, this prosperity message is still being preached today. Many are following a message of financial wealth and well-being as their primary attraction to Jesus. You'll note that Jesus clearly establishes that this is not the proper motivation for following Jesus. Well, how about a sign then, the people ask. You know, something akin to the man of God dropped from heaven back in the wilderness wanderings. I'm reminded here of Paul's characterization of the Jews in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and here's what he says. He says, for the Jews request a sign. Jesus then makes a definitive statement in John chapter 6, verse 35. Here's what he says. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, let that analogy soak in for a moment. It's packed with implications. Here's a teaching. The Holy Spirit motivates salvation. God will use this message of salvation coupled with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to draw people to a salvation experience. And there it is in John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, let's dwell there for a moment. We are saved when we are drawn by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for renewing there is anakainosis, and it means renovation. Lost people need a renovation that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul portrays this new life in Jesus Christ in such radical terms when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I'd say that's a pretty significant renovation, wouldn't you? Now, what's the differentiation here? Well, here it is. Salvation is not merely experiencing an enlightenment or saying some special words out loud. It's not just a determination to do right or a deep emotional experience of remorse. All of those may accompany salvation, but true salvation, true salvation happens when God supernaturally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, draws a person to commit themselves completely to Jesus Christ as their only means to God and their only means to heaven. And when that process takes place, well, that's permanent. It says so right here in verse 35, when he says, shall never hunger. And again in verse 37, when he says, I will by no means cast out. And again in verse 39, when he says, I should lose nothing. Oh, in verse 40, have everlasting life. Incidentally, verse 37 includes a Greek double negative. Ume. That double negative combination adds strength to the adamant guarantee when it says, by no means cast out. It's the equivalent of our oft-used slang, you know, and especially in the South, ain't no way, 
We say, ain't no way, or ain't no way I'm going to cast you out. That phrase is actually used 94 times in the New Testament. Well, not the ain't no way, but the ume. Now, here's a very strong and decisive statement to the discussion in John 6:47. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Well, how long is everlasting anyway? Until you sin? Well, no, everlasting is everlasting. You see, salvation is a relationship. It's not just a passing experience. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you enter into a permanent, eternal covenant with God whereby you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, says so in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. In doing so, you become part of God's family. Our shortcomings have no bearing whatsoever on the integrity of that permanent family relationship. Jesus is very clear in verses 34 and 35 with his metaphor for eating. He's clearly talking about believing on Jesus as Savior. In other words, bread of life equals everlasting life. Notice Jesus' reference in verse 45 to the new covenant. That new covenant is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. But here's what Jesus says about it in verse 45. He says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus refers to the fact that the future kingdom on earth that will be established will see a new covenant established whereby all inhabitants of the earth are saved and will be living by faith. This concept is in stark contrast to the practice among the Jews in Jesus' day. Then Jesus caps off the discussion in verse 58, where he says this, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Man is the supernatural bread that was supplied from God for 40 years to Israel, beginning in Exodus chapter 16. This picture would later be revisited in the observance of communion. The institution of this ordinance is found in Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. That's following the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples prior to the crucifixion. Paul deals with communion in its proper context in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. And then watch them exit, and Jesus talks about discipleship in John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? 
He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Well, after this discussion, some of the seekers who had been following Jesus followed him no more, as we see in verse 66, where it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, that statement has no implications regarding salvation whatsoever. That's important to know. Salvation and discipleship, not the same thing. It's a simple statement regarding who continued to physically follow Jesus around in his ministry. But what about the twelve? Well, here's Peter's defining statement in verses 68 and 69. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, that was not the testimony of one there. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? The Greek word for devil there is diabolos, from which we get our English word diabolical. That word usually translated devil, but is also sometimes translated accuser or slanderer. Since the definite article is not used here, as in the devil, it's not likely that Jesus is referring to Judas as the devil incarnate, but rather more likely that he's identifying that one there, Judas, has motivations that are diabolical. In other words, the devil, he'll be pleased. Jesus identifies that one of them is there with evil motivations. This puts to rest the notion that Judas fell out of a relationship with Jesus or that he lost his salvation. Jesus clearly identifies that Judas was chosen as a disciple for a very specific purpose, but that he was evil from the very beginning. Now, let me say again, salvation and discipleship are two different relationships. Would you not agree that verse 70 tells us that while Judas was a disciple, he was not saved? Well, let's not stop with Judas. Are there not a host of people in our world today who subscribe to the notion of emulating the life of Jesus, but those very same people have not trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? There are entire religions and denominations based upon this very principle. Therefore, let me say it once again, salvation and discipleship are two different relationships. The victorious believer has both. Now, if you want to read more about the difference between salvation and discipleship, then go look at my summary, my commentary on Matthew 16, 24-27, Mark 8, 34-38 and Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. At the bottom of the written notes of BibleTalk.org for today, there's a link, and you can just click there, and it'll take you right there. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.BibleTalk.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walter.